Following the feeding of the multitude, the Bible tells us of a variety of responses between those who were there. Certainly the differences of opinion would have been even greater than what we could possibly know today, but it isn't hard to imagine how they must have felt in the presence of such an amazing work of God. What is clear from the text is that some wanted to make Jesus their new king in the hopes that he would overthrow Roman oppression. Some just wanted him to provide bread so that they would have food without end. Others may have been intrigued by the possibility of wealth or power if they could somehow co-opt what Jesus was doing for their own benefit and market it to the world around them. And probably a few were just swept up in the flurry of activity and unwilling to walk away. The only thing that is clear from the scripture and the text that we have today is that all of them that were there and that remained had one thing in common. All of them were seeking Jesus. Following the feeding of the multitude and sensing the intent of the crowd, Jesus withdrew from them. And then he and the disciples crossed the lake at night and went to the other side. What follows this encounter is a lengthy discourse on the very first I am statement of seven in John's gospel. This particular I am statement is one that reminds us that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He's already used the new birth and living water as a way to teach deeper truths of the kingdom, and now he will use bread as well. He introduces bread as another way to lead us to a deeper, more genuine understanding of the necessity of true belief as the only means of salvation. Initially, people don't understand But ultimately, the foundation for faith in Jesus as the means of salvation will be not only revealed, but repeated frequently. In John chapter 6, in verses 20 through 24, we have the first of three things that I share with you from this passage that we see that's entitled Seeking Jesus. First of all, the pursuit of wrong outcomes. We often get caught up in the pursuit of wrong outcomes. In verse 20, the Bible says in chapter 6, he said to them, excuse me, it's verse 22. I just said to you verse 20 and I'm looking at it and thinking, that's not right. Um, I don't know why I wrote that down. On the next day, verse 22, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, the next day, 
The crowd is still on the east side of the lake. The disciples and Jesus are now on the west side. We know from the previous passage that Jesus put the disciples in the boat, sent them off, and then later during the night when the storm rose up and the boat was threatened, Jesus came to them walking on the water and then miraculously carried them or moved them from where they were to the shore on the other side into safety. The crowd wouldn't have seen any of this, and all they know is that when the disciples got in the boat, Jesus did not. He withdrew from the crowd. And so they're looking for him. Even though they assumed that the disciples were on the other side, they likewise assumed that Jesus was not. When they could not find him, they will eventually get in the boats and they too go to the other side as well. It isn't unusual that we assume that God is always going to work in ways that we understand. We assume that he's going to do what we anticipate or what we expect. We assume that he's going to be where we thought he should be at whatever given moment we think that is to take place. The reality is that God is not bound by anything that you or I do or say or circumstances or expectations, but rather he is always at work in ways that confound even the most wise among us. We know from the previous verses then that they were seeking Jesus in order to make him king. They wanted him to be the Messiah, but they wanted his reign to conform to their own preconceived desires. They wanted Jesus. They were seeking Jesus, but the motivation for it was flawed. They were looking for an outcome that was not consistent with the purpose for which Christ came. They were looking for an outcome that was not consistent with the will of God by which he deemed Christ would come to give his life as a sacrifice for us. I think a lot of people today, many in fact, are seeking Jesus but not because of what he's going to do with regard to the kingdom or salvation. But they're seeking Jesus to fulfill their own perceived needs and desires. There's little, if any, consideration for the terms of God's will or a greater focus on his purpose. But most of the time, it's really always just about me. Faith and belief in Jesus forces us to move beyond the limitations of what we thought we needed or what we've imagined is to take place. It moves us beyond the limitations of living in a broken world that is confined as a result of its physical existence and sinful core. It moves us to move beyond the expectations that if we can just do more of this or that or less, perhaps, then everything in this life will be good and everything will be great and everything will be okay, and yet it never is. And even though we have moments of respite and moments of peace, we realize that they are just that, only moments. The desire of the heart to try to meet that need with something that is incapable of it is the foundation of what is being laid even in this introduction He is helping us to understand, as he did so long ago, that the expectations of people will usually be driven by their bellies, will be driven by physical desire, will be driven by what can be provided within the confines of the current existence, 
But ultimately what we need can never be limited to that. What we truly need most is to be found only through belief in Jesus as the Savior. Secondly, the problem with things that don't last. Jesus points out, beginning in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Remember, they had already said they didn't see him get in the boat, so they don't know how it would be possible that he's on the other side. The question when they ask, when did you come here, is loaded. And what he really means is not only when did you come here, how did you get here? Have you ever asked God how he's done something because he did it in a way you didn't understand? As though he is supposed to answer that and as though he is supposed to give us an explanation that will satisfy whatever curiosity may be driving the question in the first place. When did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. When the people found Jesus and asked when he got there, Jesus doesn't answer their question, but speaks directly to the situation at hand. He speaks directly to the heart of the matter, pointing out why they are seeking him. They are not seeking him because they believe the sign. They are seeking him because they ate their fill. In John's gospel, he never uses the word miracle. Others do to describe the same events, but not John. The reason John doesn't use the word miracle and instead uses the word sign is he wanted us to realize that the sign always points to something else beyond it. Something that cannot be confined by whatever is directly before us. In the case of the feeding of the multitude, the sign that they had seen was not in the provision of bread and fish. It was not in the provision of the loaves. It was not in the provision of physical needs being met. The sign pointed to the provider. It was always about the provider. But Jesus pointed out that they had missed it. The provision that the feeding of the multitude should prompt them to focus on the provider, not the food. And yet, they are missing it. In verse 27, Jesus said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus pointed out that working for food that perishes is ultimately futility. While the food that comes from the Son of Man brings eternal life, which fulfills purpose. God has set his seal, meaning that he has approved and has given authority to his Son. But they are not seeing either of those things. This is an introduction to remind all of us of the challenge that comes from focusing on that which is eternal as opposed to that which is temporal. The temporal world will not, will not continue forever. It will ultimately come to an end. When it does, what is left? Do we end with it or do we see a continuation that comes from the fulfillment that is our ultimate purpose of fellowship with God and a relationship with Him? Jesus is laying the foundation of what is going to be taught through this lengthy discourse in chapter 6. 
And it is long. And as a result of that, I won't give as much attention to the details along the way as they probably deserve. But suffice it to say that at least with a brief overview, we can see the interchange that is taking place between Jesus and those who are seeking him and understand that he is continually leading and teaching and moving them to a deeper understanding. Likewise, With all of us still today, he is calling us to a deeper, more profound understanding. In verse 28, then they said to him, we must, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They are looking for a living rather than eternal life. So if you are telling us that we should be seeking something beyond the bread that perishes, then what is it that we need to do in order to attain this? Notice how immediately they go to their own works and deeds. It's not unlike us. We always look for solutions that we can fix whatever problems that are within the realm of our own control. But the solution for them would not be found in their own abilities. It would be found in something far different than they had imagined. Now granted, they had grown up in Judaism. Judaism focused a great deal of attention on works. Even though that wasn't really what was intended in the law, that was the outcome of what had resulted. And so they saw themselves as working in order to receive approval for God. And God would give that approval by providing them with blessing or with wealth or with something else. It really is no different than legalism in any generation. Legalism is always going to be flawed and will ultimately always fail because all legalism depends on what you can do, not on what God has done. The reason it's attractive to us is because it's simplified. It enables us to have control in the religious process that we find ourselves. It allows us to demand of God or to have clear expectations of how he's going to act. Faith doesn't work like that. Faith is dynamic. And faith has no dependence on self, but everything depends on Christ. And what Jesus is trying to help them to understand is that he is leading them to a more genuine faith that will ultimately liberate them from their greatest enemy and bring them into eternal hope. They're looking for the wrong stuff. And as a result of that, they are saying, what is it that we need to do? And he said, the only thing that you need to do is believe. The hardest work that the Christian will ever do is believe. Now you'll notice that, as I pointed out earlier, John doesn't use the word miracle. He uses sign. He also doesn't use the word faith. He uses believe. Now why is that? The word faith is a good word, and I'm not saying you shouldn't use it or that we shouldn't use it or it isn't consistent when we read about it in Scripture. Certainly it is, and yes, we should, and all of those things. But what he's trying to help us to understand is that faith is not something that is going to be contained in and of itself. 
but rather it is something that happens within the life of the person who has faith that moves beyond just what we say we know and starts to transform who we are and what we do. In that regard, when you see this phrase where he says, believe in him that has been sent, what he is saying is believe in Jesus and act on that belief. So that belief and obedience are one in the same in the mind of John. He is helping us to understand as Jesus is teaching them that they are to not only believe in who he is, but to believe also in God who has sent him and to understand that that belief is going to be transformative so that they now will follow him. It is a strong statement, but it is one that continues to challenge still today. Too many people are willing to say that they believe But what they really mean is that they believe that he exists or they believe that he's historical. They believe that he's a a God of love or he's a great teacher. On and on the list goes. But the reality is that none of that is going to matter until we come to the realization that believing in Jesus changes us. It isn't just believe. It's obedience and surrender. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. The next question reveals the continuing lack of genuine belief because they want proof. As an example of the proof that they seek, they point to the manna that was provided in the wilderness during the Exodus. And then they declare, Moses gave this manna from heaven. Jesus points out that the manna did not come from Moses at all. It came from God. In the same regard, they are seeking now. And ultimately what all need is to be found in Christ alone as given by God. The manna was a temporary type of bread. And the true bread that is in fact Jesus himself gives eternal life. Eternal life without end, eternal life that is also, as he will show us, secure. Jesus again introduces these theological principles in ways that they haven't thought about. Surely it must have sparked an interest in their minds, but in spite of that, they still aren't quite getting it. And so they say, give us this bread always. It's not unlike the woman of Samaria who at the well, when Jesus told her he was the living water from which she would never thirst again. And she said, give me this water because she didn't think she would ever have to come back and draw it from the well or carry it home. We are so fixated on what's right in front of us. It is difficult. It is difficult to break through the fog of unbelief, especially when it is so oppressive. But Jesus isn't finished. 
Thirdly, the promise of eternal life. In verse 35 and verse 36, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He reminds them then through this initial statement. This is the I am statement. It will be repeated, but it is the primary statement that we see this foundational principle built around. Jesus uses the I am statements as a comparative in order to illustrate his nature and his giftedness, to illustrate his identity and his authority, to help them to understand why he is here and what he is doing. All of this is a means of teaching, but it is also a means of understanding. What you will discover as we go through the rest of chapter 6, not today, so you can go ahead and release that gasp you just pulled in. Uh, What you will discover as we go through that is that when Jesus talks about eating bread, he's talking about eating as a way of believing or synonymous of that. When he talks about bread, he's talking about himself. So what he's saying when he uses eating bread, he is talking about taking him into us so that we are believing into him as well. The analogy will become even clearer as he moves forward, but it will only happen as he begins to really focus their attention in even stronger terms. Believing, coming, obeying, these are all in mind in the words of Jesus, yet still he said, you do not believe. Just as the physical experience of eating and drinking do not guarantee life, so the mere physical seeing of Jesus does not guarantee faith. Had a conversation, it's been quite some time ago. A person was very familiar with Scripture, had grown up in a Christian household, but considered themselves an agnostic. Made the statement that all of the miracles and the supernatural influence of the Bible should be removed. And I said, That's an interesting statement. I said, Why do you say that? He said, Because they're not true. And I said, well, I can't make you believe something. I can't force my opinion upon you. But I said, without the supernatural elements and qualities, the true depth of understanding Scripture is impossible. And the reason that you want to remove it isn't because you don't believe it, but it's because you don't believe it that it's an irritation to you. You want to hold the image of faith and Christianity on one side, but on your own terms. And you want to deny its demand for surrender on the other. And I said, I get it. I'm not condemning you for it. I'm telling you, I don't agree with you. The supernatural elements of Scripture and that which is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ is in fact the very hope of life for the believer. It is apart from this that we are all but lost. But it is because of this that we are redeemed. Jesus said, still, you do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is, in fact, one of the strongest statements on the perseverance of believers found anywhere in Scripture. Salvation is entirely the work of God, and what God accomplishes cannot be overturned by circumstance or others, but rather will achieve its eternal purpose and redemption. The promise of eternal life being further explained by Jesus in these verses, God is the one who enables us to come to Jesus. He is the one who draws us to himself. And he says that when we come in response to that, in obedience to that, he will not cast us out. This is the will of God who sent Jesus to call people to himself. And in addition to all that come to Jesus, to keep in security those who cannot be lost. Now, what does this do for us? Again, it removes the human element from salvation. God is the one who initiates our salvation. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who transforms us. It is the salvation that Jesus brings about in the life of the, of the person who is the believer. It is not the act of believing alone. It is the very ability to believe that comes from this experience. And once believe in Jesus, you cannot be lost because he says, all those who belong to him, he will preserve. It is a powerful statement of hope. It is a greater statement of security. And it is the foundation upon which the Christian builds their life as an expression of faith and light to the world. Verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 40 restates all that has been said as firm promise guaranteeing salvation that depends on obedient belief in Jesus alone. It's difficult to look beyond the temporal demands of life to the eternal life that has true meaning and purpose. And yet this is the key to faith. Trusting in who Christ is and what he has done instead of the perishing works of man and the meager provisions that soon pass. The question that comes back to us is who are we seeking? And if we say, oh, I'm seeking Jesus, then the question goes even further. What is it that you're seeking from Jesus? Is it something that is going to soon pass away? Or is it that which is imperishable? True belief brings us to an awareness of what lies ahead in a way that gives us confidence to know we're part of it now. But one day it will be realized fully. It isn't just about escaping hell, nor is it just about going to heaven. It is about the realization of the fulfillment of the purpose for which you were made in the first place. Jesus is the means by which this reality 
is to be known and experienced because Jesus is the bread of life. So the question is, what are you seeking? The real question, what are you seeking? Better yet, are you really seeking Jesus? Jesus.